Welcome to a podcast from Venice. This week we'll be talking with Eric Myers. He's the writer and director of Butterfly Kisses. They're coming to get you, Barbara. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. The unburied dead are coming back to life. Eric, how's it going? It's going quite well, as well as can be, being that we live in strange and interesting times. Yes. Well, I feel well, like it's a sci-fi movie right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of going that way. Yeah. Well, speaking of movies, uh, we're going to start with our, this is our first question we ask of our guests. What's your favorite horror movie? The Exorcist. Oh, it's man, tough, yes. because I've got, I've got three films that if you were to say, you know, what were the ones that most influenced me? I would say The Exorcist, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, mm. and American Werewolf in London. And like all three traumatized me as a very small child. <laughs> the Exorcist is just, you know, that is a stone cold classic. That's a masterpiece. I've seen The Exorcist as a kid, but American Werewolf in London messed me up more than The Exorcist did. Why is that? It was the scene whenever Jack gets killed right right and he's screaming that he this this thing is killing me so he was aware that he was dying for some reason that always stuck with me that he that that's the the, you know the awareness that you are slowly being eaten alive by (laughs) yeah a wild animal (laughs) seeing that as a kid on hbo at nighttime yeah and it's it's funny because that is so effective and yet at the same time everybody bags on and, and, and with good reason. So hear me out before before you start laughing. Friday the 13th, part four. There is a death scene where the actor, Eric Anderson's character, is being uh, just brutalized by Jason in the basement. He's just being murdered. And he's screaming out, he's killing me. He's killing me. And it's the same thing, but that scene always gets laughs. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember that scene too. And then another another good death scene is Dawn of the Dead, nineteen seventy eight. Whenever the character played by Tasso is getting his guts ripped open, and he's watching it the whole time, and just the way that guy's screaming, just that uh, gives me chills every time. <laughs> no, that's that is a really solid observation, and it's it's funny that you say that because it's so obvious that so many kills in horror films, specifically if we're talking about slashers or, or sort of things of that ilk, it's all about, you know, the penetration shot, the, the, the gore explosion, whatever that is, and the victim drops dead. We don't tend to see that prolonged sequence where the victim is suddenly realizing their impending doom and then living through it for however long or short that might be. So... Yeah, that's that's funny because if you asked me in American Werewolf what had scared me the most, that is not what I would have said. But now I know that the next time I watch it, I'm going to be looking at it that way. Cool. All right, so you kind of you kind of answered my next question a little bit, um, of course, with your influences. But what got you into filmmaking? Um, it just the fact that films. They inspired the desire to to create stories from a very, very, very young age. 
I was writing at a at a at an early time in my life. But films specifically, because these films that I'm I'm talking about right now, these horror movies that that scared me so badly as a kid, I realized there was a power in that. And you know, that's true of any genre, the ability to make someone laugh or to make someone cry or to be terrified. That is, that, there's magic to that. And once you sort of um, fall prey to the spell, it, some of us start sitting up and going, wow, that's, that really messed me up. I wanna do that to someone else. And I, I think that's, that's really what sort of pushed me into film versus just writing, you know, novels or something along those lines. Hmm. Uh, what? Well, I just, I'll go to this question. What's um, what's your writing process like? Um, it's it's quick. It's fast. I, I have a tendency to, if I'm inspired, I sit down and I don't plot. I don't map anything out in advance. Um, I'm very aware of three act structure and realizing where I need my turning points and 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 for you know these big events to happen or goalposts within the story. But I never plot ahead, and I just sort of say, okay, I got you know 20 pages to do this, and I've got 40 pages to do that, and then I got 20 pages to do this, and I just sort of throw scenarios out there and let the characters respond to it. I feel like if I'm really enjoying myself. Uh, writing becomes for me the way it should be for the reader or for the viewer. I keep wanting to see what happens, and um, I love when I'm surprised at the end. Isn't it more typical though for most writers to to have the ending and then try to write to the ending? Or yeah, I'm, I'm, I fall into that that minority of writers who um, sort of throws flips the bird at the established rules i mean you're taught in any film class or in any book on the subject um and and not just for film if you're writing you're supposed to use index cards and you know have these these breakdowns and these scenarios for for each chapter or each segment or whatever that is and um that is to uh, you know maintain your through line to maintain your structure uh, and I don't do that. I don't believe in that. I, I, I would rather personally go on an adventure in the writing process um, because hopefully that excitement will carry over onto the page and ultimately onto the screen. Because when I do it, I write really, really, really fast. I wrote Butterfly Kisses in, I think, seven or eight days. And, wow. you know, again, it just becomes addictive. I, I don't want to watch TV right now. I don't want to play PlayStation. I just want to get back to that window in front of me and, you know, sort of see the events play out before anybody else gets a chance to. How do you, um, <clears throat> how do you come up with the characters and then flesh them out throughout the story? Um, I, you know, sort of start with a basic concept and um, I try to come up with a group of characters that I think are probably ill-fit for whatever their particular, uh, whatever the plot is, because the more chafing there is, the more conflict there is, the more drama. Um, in the case of Butterfly Kisses, you know, I knew I had to have a filmmaker as the protagonist, uh, but I didn't want him to necessarily be a protagonist. I thought having a guy that you're kind of rooting for, but at the same time, you're like, this guy's kind of a D-bag, um, it, it just, allows you to sort of become invested um, whether you're rooting for him or you're rooting against him. 
So yeah, I, I think that the more flaws a character has, um, the more interesting the overall story will be. Yeah, cool. Aaron, you got any questions? No, um, I did want to mention that I listened to a, a, a interview you did previously, and uh, that's right, you you uh, you wrote that in seven days. I was like, man, that's that's crazy. You know, I guess the ideas just flow through, and I really. Uh, I really liked how you said, because they asked you, what what was the, like, how did you come up with the idea of butterfly kisses? And you were talking about you were on a walk or something, and it just kind of, it pops in your head. And then you just kind of, that's where, that's where uh, it came from. Just, I guess, when everything's just shut off, and it's just you, and, and you're alone with your thoughts, I guess that's the best way to do it. Or I guess that's when the best ideas come out. It, it does. And, you know, some people, for some people, it's when they take showers that they have their inspiration. For some people, it's walks. And, um, you know, the, the truth is that it might take you 90 minutes or two hours to watch an independent film, but independent films, and, and I'm not talking like Fox Searchlight independent films where they yeah. own $15 million. <laughs> um, you know, a true independent film is usually... Um, you know, financed on by a lot of favors and credit cards and blood and sweat. And it, it'll take several years um, to finish a film, even if it only takes you, you know, a few weeks or what have you to shoot it. Uh, the entire process of trying to be a weekend warrior and an overnight savant, you know, it, it just, it takes a lot of time. And then once you get finished with that, uh, if you're doing film festivals, try to build a buzz. Um, and then from the moment you sign a release contract, it's, you know, it's six months or nine months before the movie actually gets out there. So by the time you're doing interviews and you're talking about it, you're sick to death of it. Like you never <laughs> want to see it again. You never want to discuss it. And so whatever you're going to do next, knowing that you're about to, you know, jump into something like this, it's really, really got to have your attention. It's, it's got to be something that you're willing to spend that much time on. And I, I can't speak for any filmmaker other than myself, but uh, when I finish a film, I, I don't want to do anything like that film moving forward. I want to try something different as a storyteller or um, you know, a completely different genre. And so when I came up with Butterfly Kisses, yeah, it hit me as I was on a walk after I just spent five years doing my previous film, Roulette, which was this intense psychological thriller filled with all sorts of social issues and hot button topics and whatnot. And, you know, I'm like, oh, cool, deconstruction of found footage, bam, let's do this. <laughs> and it was fun to write. It was just fun to sit down and sort of, you know, not necessarily make fun of, but maybe satirize that genre a little bit as it was becoming so, um, you know, so prevalent in terms of uh, the types of horror films that were being released at the time. Yeah, and I know we've we've talked to a couple of, you know, independent directors and, and something you said, I mean, it, it's, it, these things, they, like you said, it takes time and it, it drains you mentally and it just, you know, some, and there was something you said that I was like, yeah, I've heard that before where you just want to throw in the towel, but you keep going because it's something that you, you really want to happen. And I admire filmmakers for that because that takes a lot of patience and, 
I know it takes a hit and, you know, relationships and all that stuff. And I, I just, I commend you for that, man. I mean, just pulling through it and then it's now it's out there. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, it's, it's tough and it can be a, it can be a very lonely journey sometimes. Um, you know, it sort of starts, at least in my case, being that I, I write my own films, it starts as sort of, you know, a, a very private and um, lonely process of, you know, coming up with the idea, writing the thing, rewriting it, and then starting to slowly show it around, get some opinions, then start building your team. And, and it, it's great when everybody is all there and we're all on set, you know, and we're doing the, you know, it's the, the, Facebook famous selfie shots, you know, hashtag mm -hmm. set life and everything. And it's, it's all fun. It's all cool. And, um, you know, it then slowly the team starts to whittle back again to, you know, one or two or three. And it's, again, it's, it's just like, it's a marathon. It's an endurance test. And there are a lot of times where you either want to throw in the towel or you trip on the towel and you fall on your face. Um, but it, it ultimately it's worth it because, you know, I, at least the way I like to look at it is I say, whenever I watch, um, having completed and released two feature films and another one that, you know, sort of sitting there in the wings waiting to be finished, whenever I do a feature, I feel like it's this incredible home movie of a very specific period of my life that will never be duplicated again. And so I watch the film and I just sort of remember and see what was happening that day that we did that, or, you know, what was happening in my personal life when I wrote that scene. And it, it, it brings a lot, it, it brings a lot back revisiting. Well, what would you say, what was the biggest hurdle that you faced when making the Butterfly Kisses movie? It's always money. Um, it always comes down to money and it's not just money to be able to afford special effects or set pieces that you want to pull off or, I mean, it's sometimes it's just a case of you can't take off work unless you're able to cover your bills. And, you know, it, it, it costs money to get to set. It costs money to eat on set. It costs money to take care of, you know, the people that are working for you. And um, it's always about money. And that's, that's the hard thing that you're trying to, again, shoot weekends and overnights and fit that into your life. And you're like, oh, damn, if I only had this much money, um, you know, I could shoot all weekend and even just take Monday off for myself, get a little bit of sleep afterwards. Um, but, you know, I'd like to think that art from adversity is something that happens more often than not. And, you know, I would sort of like to embrace limitations to a degree because it makes me forced to be more creative. What do you like doing more acting or directing? I don't like acting at do you all. Not? <laughs> uh, I did, you know, I did a number of years of theater growing up and it wasn't because I ever wanted to be an actor myself. Uh, it was rather that I thought it was important if I was going to be a director to understand the process that is required to take yourself to a specific point. And especially, you know, with my eye on, I want to do horror films or I want to do, you know, psychological thrillers, things that are intense to a certain degree. And 
you know, knowing what I need to do to get myself to a very emotional or fragile or vulnerable place that, you know, that's only going to help me direct other people. And so, you know, directing is a lot like being a therapist, being, um, you know, an, an actor's best friend or the character's best friend as you're trying to either make them feel better or make them feel worse, whatever is required to get them to a certain point. And every actor is different. Every actor needs different cues, different, um, you know, you come up with a secret language that just exists between you and them. And that's great. That's fun when I'm the puppet master. It's not fun, uh, you know, for someone else to direct me and certainly not to direct myself uh, as I was in this film. It was, it was a case of, with this movie being so meta and realizing that, you know, it's, it's found footage that has a documentary being made about the found footage that has a documentary being made about the guy who's making the documentary about the found footage. With all of these, these levels that were going in there, I'm writing it and I'm realizing, oh shit, I'm gonna show up in this, aren't I? I'm gonna have to be in there as the director of the movie that we are all watching. I'm gonna have to show up. And I kept trying to sort of put it off as long as I could. And I was like, I don't wanna be in this movie. I don't wanna, I don't wanna act. I, I, I've got a you know, face for radio. So let's just stay behind the camera where I belong. And ultimately I realized if I had all of these people playing themselves and the movie is so meta like that with so many people playing themselves, authors and disc jockeys and filmmakers and what have you, I had to be in it. And ultimately, I am, and um, I will never do it again. <laughs> I thought you'd done a good job. <laughs> well, thank you. It has less to do with uh, talent than it has to do with, um, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, I, I was worried that it might come off narcissistic. I was worried that it might come off like, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know, putting myself in my own film as myself. You know, that, that's something that I felt in the edit had to be handled a very specific way. And because it could elicit so many types of responses. And I've read reviews or, you know, Amazon reviews or what have you, where, you know, some people are like, oh, I love that the director, the real director showed up in the film. And then there are other people who are like, oh man, that director was an asshole. And I'm like, well, it's <laughs> true. I am and I was, but you know, it's just, again, it's, it's how is somebody taking it? How would I take it if I watched the film and the director showed up as himself? Wes Craven in New Nightmare, for example, you know, for some people that's a really cool thing for other people. They're like, that's ah, kind of stupid. Right. <laughs> uh, and speaking of the editing, um, I like something that you, you said where I guess the, there's three parts to it. And I guess, um, writing and then you said like the editing you had to it was it was something along those lines i'm sorry i'm trying to remember <laughs> i'm terrible but I, uh yeah yeah writing the film that's whenever you're writing a film you write it three times yes and the third yeah. time is editing i'm sorry i finally got it it's it's all right. I try to forget what I say the moment I say it. Um, <laughs> no, I'm trying. No, no it, 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 you're right. I mean, it, it is like that. You do kind of write the movie three times and, you know, there's on the page and then you're on set and everything kind of changes. Your preconceived notions begin to change and you begin to see other possibilities. 
Um, sometimes you, you throw out all the dialogue you had and other times you're like, let's just add some inflections to this because this might set up something we could do later. Uh, and then there's the edit. And when this film was first assembled, it was, it was just a few minutes shy of three hours long. And I had intended to make a commercial 90 minute release and I ended up with this, this monster. And I'm looking at it and going, okay, well, I mean, I didn't put anything into this first cut that I did not think had to be there or should be there. I, and, and I could have made this half an hour longer, but there's other stuff I didn't put in, but I've got three hours here and I don't know how I'm going to bring this thing down. And for about five minutes, I toyed with the idea of, you know, making it a, a mini series, you know, six episodes or something. And I realized, um, as did my producers, that if we were going to, this, this was a movie that was going to be sort of a buzz film, that this was the sort of thing that you go to conventions, you go to film festivals, you show it around and people start talking about it. And to do that, you need a film. You can't do that with a miniseries. You need a 90 minute commercial piece as originally intended. So, okay, cool. Um, I get that. But now I got to take essentially half the movie away. And that was a process of, I mean, it was about a year. And part of that was the fact that I was working with my co-editor, a guy named Kenny Johnson, who was also the cinematographer for the movie. And even more importantly than that, he's a documentary filmmaker. That, that's what he does. And I specifically reached out to him to do the shooting rather than you know, any other cinematographer I'd worked with before or that I knew through association. By virtue of the fact that you know, there, there's cinematography where you've got your camera on a crane and you've got your camera on a dolly and you know, you're, you're doing choreographed sort of camera moves for specific reasons. And then there's documentary filmmaking that actually looks like documentary filmmaking where you don't know what's going to happen next. You're there with the camera and you're trying to capture it all. And I wanted a guy that really did that, that really understood that. And then it would make the film look more real. The problem was that he shot so much great stuff above and beyond what was in the script that I just wanted all of it. It felt, it made it feel so real. And so he was co-editing the film with me and he was working with me for, again, about a year because we did a test screening where we had people come in off the street and fill out comment cards. Um, you know, we had Eduardo Sanchez, the co-director of the Blair Witch Project, who... Um, you know, I mean, he's the guy who sort of created the popcorn version of found footage as we know and understand it. He was offering, you know, all this wonderful uh, feedback and advice as we were doing the cut. We have three stories that are going on simultaneously and we're trying to, you know, hit a three act structure and make that 90 minutes and convey all of the information that needs to be conveyed and have all of those sort of layers of the story makes sense. Um, that was challenging. That was really, really, really hard. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> so uh, whenever you were <clears throat> making this movie, why, why, why did you go with the found footage? Was there, were you a fan of found footage or were you just, was that just the idea that came to your head? Um, I, I, I write a lot of film criticism 
And I've, I've been published in a couple of books and I am doing a lot of writing for Ain't It Cool News right now, specifically on the subject of different franchises and sort of, you know, let's take this genre, whether it's the horror genre or this one that's the superhero genre, you know, where does it sort of begin in terms of the, you know, the earliest films and then how do they morph? How do they change as audience expectations change as, um, you know, the film industry itself changes. I find those things very, very fascinating. And I liked found footage and like found footage um, up to a point, just like with any genre, there's a, you know, you've got your your classics and you have um, very good films that come along and sort of take uh, what was so great before and put new spins on it. And then you've got crap. You've got just derivative garbage that is soulless and, you know, again, you could say that for any genre. And that's kind of where I felt that found footage was getting when we made this film. We shot it in 2015. And the reason that I went with that particular genre or subgenre was I was out for the walk that we talked about. And I was sort of thinking about, I was just thinking about film in general and sort of, you know, stretching my brain cells and wondering what I was going to make next. And I had just seen, whether it was in the theater or it was on television, a trailer or a commercial for a found footage movie that was coming out. And at this point, it was either, uh, you know, Paranormal Activity 4 or, or The Last Exorcism 2 or something like that. And I started thinking about found footage and, you know, how awesome it was when Blair Witch came out in 99 and there was that window of time when people thought for five minutes that it was real. Never mind the fact that Cannibal Holocaust had done this, you know, almost 20 years <laughs> earlier. Um, you can go back, you know, earlier than that if you want, the Nook of the North. I mean, there, there are so many, you know, stages along the way and then you get that one film that comes out and that's the zeitgeist, that's the, that's the button and, you know, everything follows. And Blair Witch was so cool and it was so different for its time. And again, it was art from adversity. It, you know, Dan Myrick and Ed Sanchez, they knew they had no money. And they, they, you know, sort of embraced those limitations and came up with something that was very, very cool and different. And now it's just, you know, it's a, it's a dog food factory. You know, it's just, <laughs> you know, the crap is made and squeezed out and it's the same thing over and over again, with some exceptions, obviously. But... I was thinking about that and, you know, just how derivative it had become. And I, I sort of put myself in a what if situation and thought, what if in this day and age where we know that we can't even trust documentaries, um, we, we can't trust so-called reality TV because it's scripted, they do reshoots, it's edited a specific way to tell a specific story. Um, we can't trust the things that we see and anybody can, you know, with their, their basic MacBook that comes out of the box at Best Buy, you know, it comes with audio and video editing and recording software that if Hitchcock or Orson Welles had had this stuff, they would have, you know, we'd, we'd be in the year, you know, 3 billion by now. Um, I, I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, anybody can shoot and upload to YouTube. Anybody can edit something. Anybody can, you know, capture something from the TV and they can, they can do their own, you know, did Trump really say it or didn't? Regardless, you know, it had gotten to such a point where 
what if a person really found a box of mini DV tapes or discarded film canisters or something like that, and they thought they had really found, real found footage. Like these guys, they go looking for a ghost and they die. What would you do with that? And what would people say in response to that, particularly post Blair Witch? Um, what would people think? They would probably think that you were full of it. They would probably think that you were just trying to make a crummy horror movie or that you were delusional because you found somebody's unfinished horror movie from a decade before and try and pass it off as real. All these what ifs went through my mind and I'm thinking that's the side of the story that we never get. Who found the footage and how are we watching it at AMC right now? And I ran home and I started writing. That's something I actually wrote that down when I rewatched it today that the movie made me think that all of the previous found footage films have basically cried wolf so that whenever an actual ghost tape or Bigfoot footage, we're all just going to say that it's fake. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> You're never going to, like, nothing real is ever going to be believed now. <laughs> well, well, like the pictures they just released of the UFOs, everybody's like, eh, yeah. <laughs> right, right. We can't trust anything that we see anymore. So, you know, we, we could get a close-up shot of the Loch Ness Monster winking for the camera, and, um, you know, it, it would probably not pass the the smell test, even if it was legit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the the peeping tom um, or the the blinking man character, the character that you wrote for that. Now I'd read that someone believed it so much that they put it in a, a local folklore book. Yes. Yes. Um, wow. There's a there is a uh, historian and author named Shelley Davies Wygant, and she wrote a book about the town and surrounding area uh, that Butterfly Kisses takes place in. It's a, it's a place called Ellicott City here in Maryland, right outside of Baltimore. And it's just like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sheer rock cliffs with churches and spires on top and, you know, a main street threading through and a river that goes through the, the valley. And it's, it's this incredibly picturesque, uh, cinematic as hell, uh, environment that also happens to be home to a really crazy number of, you know, real life, and I'm using figure quotes right now, real life ghost stories. There are ghost walking tours all the time. Every shop, every tavern, there's a ghost story. And the area is so rich with this sort of culture that growing up in the area you know, I was, I, was, I was a punk teenager and I hopped the fences and I went, you know, up to the, the haunted ruins of this place and that place and, you know, trying to scare the hell out of myself along with all my classmates. Um, and in Ellicott City, there was one location that was considered haunted but did not have a specific ghost story tied to it. And that was Ilchester Train Tunnel, you know, which is this tunnel going through a, a, a rock cliff, um, you know, accessible only by a trestle that spans a river. And um, it's a really creepy place in real life. And kids really do, as, you know, is suggested in the film, they go up there at night and scare the hell out of themselves. It's just that, you know, it's a, it's a sort of place where I heard this and I saw something creepy and, um, but no real legend, no real story or pedigree to the place. 
And I thought it would be really fun in this movie that is posing as a documentary about found footage um, and in which I am casting real people and real authorities on folklore or ghost hunting or whatever, um, casting real people as themselves to create that verisimilitude that what you're seeing is real. To take a real place with a real history and give it the ghost story it doesn't have. I thought that'd be fun and that maybe, um, you know, some teenagers might see this film and think it was a real documentary or at the very least um, a fake documentary about a real ghost story and, you know, perpetuate that myth. And the crazy thing was that during production, long before we told anybody what the film was about or there was a trailer or it had screened anywhere for anybody, I had been utilizing social media and using, uh, you know, the local Ellicott City Tourism Board website and message boards in various forums about the Amityville Horror and all sorts of things, planting these sort of fake accounts um, about haunted Ilchester Tunnel, about the Blink Man or Peeping Tom or whatever story, whatever name was ascribed to this character when you heard it based on your generation. And I wrote a couple of fake news articles for local publications under pseudonyms about this history, about this ghost story. And the week the film is coming out, I just happened to discover that a book was being published during the exact same week by this author, Shelley Davies Wygant, about Haunted Ellicott City. And the Blink Man was in there. He had a whole chapter. Wow. And it, blew my mind. I thought it was crazy. But <laughs> by that same token, I'd also seen that it was getting, uh, you know, this, this entity I'd created was getting its own entries on Creepypasta and that there were Reddit threads and there was oh, a wow. YouTube paranormal show that did an episode on it. And it was crazy, again, before anybody even seen the film. And it, to me, that's a lot of fun. Oh yeah, that's that's awesome. <laughs> no, I, I, I did, I'd be proud of something like that. <laughs> I did notice something on my when I viewed it again today. I noticed that Gavin had a tattoo of the Sonic Screwdriver, and of course, probably my favorite new Doctor Who episodes would be Blink. So, was there any influence of that? So, first of all. The actor, Seth Kallick, um, I've known him for over 20 years, and I have watched this movie in the editing bay so many times that every image is burned into my brain, and yet I have never seen a sonic screwdriver on him. Where, where is <laughs> it's this? It's on, his, it's on his arm. It's right, on his right, arm. Yeah, right here on his forearm, right here. Wow. Okay, he's got a J.R.R. Tolkien on his arm. Um... He's got a Spider-Man on on his other arm. I'm trying to think of where the sonic screwdriver is. I'm pretty that. sure. I'm pretty sure when I saw it today, like it's right here on his forearm. I swear it was the. Um, it kind of looked like the Matt Smith sonic screwdriver, and then of course the blink. And I just I just kind of thought, well, these guys are Doctor Who fans. <laughs> I, I believe you. And you know, the here's the crazy thing about this. Um, I do not like Doctor Who in the slightest. I can't stand Doctor Who. Doctor Who just there's something about it that just uh, just gets under my skin. I do not care for Doctor Who, and but you know I'm also like the world's biggest Babylon Five fan, so you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I am. At at any rate, 
I had never seen more than a handful of, um, you know, Tom Baker era Doctor Who. I'd not seen anything since. And when I created the, um, the Blink Man peeping Tom creature, I was trying to think of things that human beings have to do neurologically, physically, um, you know, things we have to do that we cannot stop ourselves from doing. And to do so, you're simply prolonging the inevitable. You're, it, it, we all have to breathe. We all have to use the bathroom. We all have to eat. And, and I was sort of, you know, running some things down and I thought, blinking, okay, all right, hey, this is a train tunnel. It's got a light at the other side. You have to stare at this thing that looks like an eyeball that's looking back at you. And if you can hold your eyes open for an hour, you see the creature appear at the end. However, every time you blink subsequently, he gets a step closer and a step closer. And eventually he gets right up to you and he kills you from a heart attack or something. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's cool. That's really, really awesome. That's great. <laughs> that's so freaky. Yeah. I write this script <laughs> and we start making this movie. Um, all is good, all is canny. And then as soon as we're done, uh, the actress who plays Gavin's wife, um, Eileen Del Valle, she's a, she's a real, real sweetheart. And she and her mother had been working with an autistic filmmaker who was trying to write, direct, build all the props for and star in a Doctor Who fan film. And Eileen comes to me and she's like, okay, Eric, now, now that we're done shooting, would you be willing to give him, you know, some advice, some guidance, mentor him a little bit? And I was like, yeah, totally. So I, I meet this filmmaker and I end up working with him for like the next three years. And I start learning way, 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 way more about Doctor Who than I ever thought I would know, than I ever wanted to know. Um, I'm going to need a lobotomy to get some of this stuff out of my brain, but <laughs> I learn all about Doctor Who and I'm like, okay, all right, Doctor Who, sure, cool. And Butterfly Kisses is drawing to a point where, you know, we're starting to do the test screenings and now we're starting to enter in the festivals and I'm going around and I'm doing Q&As all over the country and, you know, it's all cool. And the movie is about to come out and someone says, hey, so Weeping Angels, are you a are you a Doctor Who fan? That's what they're called, right? Weeping Angels. Yeah, yes. Okay, yeah, they're like you know. Are you a Doctor Who fan? And I'm like, no, I have, no, I don't. I don't watch Doctor Who. They're like, well, you've mentored a guy who did Doctor Who films. And I went, really seriously, Weeping Angels. What are they? And it's like, oh well, you know, it's like when you look away, they like get closer. And and I was like, why the fuck didn't anybody say anything about it? <laughs> like three years ago? And I'm just looking around at everybody I know, and they're like, yeah, it's, it's kind of like Weeping Angels. And I'm just, I'm sitting there banging my head against the floor. So, <laughs> one more reason to hate Doctor Who. There you go. There you go. <laughs> You're not well, alone. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't going I'm, to, I'm, I'm a big fan of Doctor Who, but I wasn't going like, to trash you for ripping it off. I just... No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, I would trash myself if I'd ripped it off. Yeah, because I also, I also <laughs> love the, 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 the fact that you have like the, uh, the aperture of the camera working as the eye. Uh, I thought that was a good. Yeah, it was just BS enough to yeah. you know, you know, pass the pass the 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 BS test, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, were there any parallels between you and the Gavin character about him being so passionate that he loses everything trying to get his film out there? 
Any yeah. any true like real life things going on there? I mean, sure. I'm an obsessive person. I'm super OCD, and um, you know, I'm I'm willing to sort of throw caution to the wind if I think I'm on the right track to something. At the same time, though, I am a dad. Um, I would never spend my son's college money, um, no matter how much I believed in what I was doing. But, but yeah, that, that obsession is, I think, you know, universal to any artist who's trying to, you know, it's one thing if you're having fun making what you're making and it's just for you and there's no stakes. It's another thing when you're trying to mount a production where you're getting a lot of people, um, you know, working for deferred pay and things like that, giving up their time and you have to deliver, you have to deliver a final product that, um, everybody associated with the film is going to say, okay, this was worth my time. Um, this has the potential to do X, Y, or Z for me, for my career, whatever. So th it's, it's an enormous amount of pressure. It's a huge amount of pressure to finish something and to finish it well. Um, and so you have to be a little bit single-minded in order to do that. Sometimes you have to be a little bit ruthless and you're going to piss some people off and, I've pissed a lot of people off. I will always continue to piss a lot of people off. But, you know, I mean, that's that's sort of the, the road you have to take in order to get done what needs getting done. Um, I, I was sort of looking at the three stages that I've experienced in my life as a filmmaker and sort of examining them through butterfly kisses. You know, at the core, you've got these two film students and you know, they're at this point in their lives where to them, every school project they're doing is the most important thing they've ever done and ever will do. It's gonna play at the student film festival. You know, it's gonna, all my teachers are gonna see it. You know, oh my God, I gotta work with this person. And, you know, it seems like a big deal at the time and it really isn't. And then there was sort of the next level, which was Gavin's level, where he was a guy who was approaching 40 and, um, you know, it, it just never happened for him. And he thought, I'm gonna sort of translate my skills into being a, a wedding videographer or whatever, you know, sort of things that filmmakers who graduate and try to continue on do to pay the bills um, or do to sort of make contacts and network and whatnot. And Gavin is this guy who now he's not doing wedding jobs when he's 25 or, 30, he's now got a wife, he's got a child, and he's sort of looking at them sideways and thinking, if you weren't around, if you hadn't been here, you know, I'd be, you know, directing Transformers 27 or, or whatever. <laughs> um, and then you got the, the final level, which was me and where I really was, which was, okay, I've made a feature, it's been released, it's gotten some good notices, some doors have opened. Uh, what I do next is the most important film I will ever make. And so, yeah, there's some truth in all of those and they're all drawn from my own experience, but it's also drawn from, you know, observations. It's, we live in a social media age, you know, you, you stay in contact with everybody you went to college with and you know, who's still making films and you know, who's working at PetSmart and really unhappy and you, you, you mine a lot for those sort of things and filter them through your own experience. 
Yeah, I feel, watching that movie, I felt really like during that the radio interview, I felt so bad for him. Like when they had that, when you had the the people calling in, it was like it was like I was listening to like <laughs> Facebook comments, <laughs> but it was like you could hear him. And I like, and then whenever he finds out that his wife left, but and like I was like, this this guy's a really good actor. I mean, he just like he was really good. He is. Seth is a is a very very talented actor, and he did an incredible job. And and you know everybody did a really incredible job, particularly given the fact that you know it's 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 a it's a dangerous thing to cast non actors because in this particular film you've got the quote unquote found footage, which was cast with actors who had done a lot of theater and but not really a lot of film i wanted to to sort of have fresh faces that you didn't recognize from anything else even if it was regional um and then in the next layer around it you know the documentary about this found footage other than gavin and his wife and mother-in-law everybody else was real every single other person in that was real and that was both really exciting and really scary because, you know, Matt Lake, Matt Lake might be a really talented folklore author, but is Matt Lake going to be able to emote? Is he going to be able to perform and, you know, not just freeze up? And, and we've all seen those bad celebrities trying to act who are not actors. Um, and Seth is really good at provoking people. And that's what Gavin is supposed to be. He's supposed to be a guy who chafes every single person he comes into contact with. And so he was really good at sort of massaging the non-actors um, and leading them into this, this artificial reality we created so that you know, their responses all felt very, very genuine. Um, but you know, Gavin is, you know, as a character, his backstory and ultimately what happens to him, take away the, you know, the monsters or the demons or the, the you know, boogeymen. He's, he's uh, very much, very, very much uh, a, a, an assembly of all of these different stories of people that I've known and people that I've seen, um, you know, really sort of end up despising the thing that they loved that, defined who they were in the first place. I've, I've seen actors move out to the West Coast and it doesn't happen for them. And they put in 10 years, 15 years. And at the end of it, you know, they, they were pounding the pavement as an actor and now they are, again, pushing 40 or what have you. And it's like, I missed the time to start a career. It's gonna allow me to buy a house. I missed the time to, you know, meet the right woman who's going to look at me with, you know, as a guy that's going to be able to provide for a family, to, to have kids, you know, and they end up despising their art, their craft, because it ruined their lives. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a dark side to the struggling artist. Aaron, you got anything else to ask? No, um, I guess there's one thing. Um, you said you were thinking about maybe getting into another kind of genre instead of horror? I mean, what are you, what are you thinking or what are you leaning more towards? Um, I, I have about, I, I have about two or three films that are all sort of dependent upon budget. And, you know, here's the, here's the, the cheap one and here's the mid range one. And here's the one where I need a million bucks. 
Um, and they're all very strong concepts and they all uh, are leaning in the horror direction or at the very least, um, you know, shadings of horror and, and strong psychological mind fuckery and whatnot. Um, again, it all comes down to money or at least that was the plan. And then COVID-19 happened and yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, I mean, looking at what's going on in the film industry right now, I mean, aside from the fact that everything's shut down, um, but you've got AMC filing for bankruptcy and you've got uh, theater owners saying, we're not going to play any universal releases. Yeah. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's all of this contention going on and at the same time, uh, the studios are announcing their next project. Keanu Reeves is going to be Constantine in Justice League Dark. And it's like, who the hell cares, man? I mean, that movie is going to, it's going to be three years before we see that movie. Yeah. You have no idea when the industry is going to open up again. And if there has been any silver lining to people being stuck at home, uh, it is the fact that with the absolute, um, you know, nothing that the main stu the major studios are releasing for the most part, people are going on Amazon Prime. They're they're mm -hmm. you know, scrolling through, and I, Butterfly Kisses is getting all sorts of hits that it wasn't getting before. You know, it came out, it made a splash, then it got a little bit quiet, and now it's starting to splash again. And it's That's great. It's a good thing to see, and maybe independent filmmakers who don't need $300 million to make a film are going to be the cockroaches that survive. Um, <laughs> perhaps, maybe maybe we'll see the 70s happen again, where the, the studio system kind of toppled, and you had the Scorseses and the Spielbergs and the Freakins and Coppolas and De Palmas, and they all came in and started making, uh, you know, independent films for uh, Hollywood budgets. Knocking on wood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, tell us about the name Zoe. Zoe. Okay. So, um, wow. Okay. So thanks. You did your homework. Uh, <laughs> Zoe is um, a protagonist from the film that I most desperately want to make in the world. Um, it is a horror film, and when I talked about those three tiers, it's the one sort of at the top, the one that requires a little bit of money. Uh, it has been read by a couple of studio people who were very, very interested in it at different times. Um, unfortunately, it, it uh, just did not work out the way that I wanted it to for a wide variety of reasons. But that character name, because this script... Um, had gotten some attention and because everybody that's read it is like, oh my God, this is the movie you have to make. This is the movie. Um, it sort of has been a good luck charm to put a character named Zoe in every script I've written since, whether that was my first feature roulette or shorts that I've made or scripts that I've written for other filmmakers, sliding a character named Zoe in there somewhere, blink and you miss it. It's been a good luck charm for me, at least, you know, as I'm going, okay, everything I do is more successful than the last. Hopefully it will lead to this movie that I want to make. And ironically, I broke that streak when I did not put anybody named Zoe in Butterfly Kisses. And that uh, is actually the movie that's actually gotten me media attention. So um, maybe my next film won't have a character named Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the trick. Could be. 
Well, I just want to say I really enjoyed this. I'm like the Blair Witch is like one of my favorite films. So I'm like a fan of like found footage, but I'm not a fan of all found footage. Um, Blair Witch, um, the Butterfly Kisses, the um, Hell House movies. Those are probably the just off the top of my head my favorite ones, and I, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, but before we get before we let you go, um, do you want to shout out your social media or where you know where everybody want to if everybody wanted to find you? Sure. If you're looking for me, my name is Eric E R I K Christopher K R I S T O P H E R Myers M Y E R S. All three of my names are spelled atypically, which means that most of my mail comes to me with all three names spelled wrong. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a bill, I feel better about throwing it away. Um, there you go. But no, uh, that's the place, uh, or that's the name to find me on Google. If you're looking for me on Twitter, it's E-K-M-Y-E-R-S. Same with Facebook, E-K-M-Y-E-R-S. Uh, you can also find me at Ain't It Cool News, where I write under the handle E-K-M. And um, I've got some other things up my sleeve that I'll definitely have to let you guys know about. And hopefully people will check it out um, in the not too distant future. Yeah. So, yeah. so butterfly, butterfly kisses. It's on Amazon Prime. Do you have anything else on Prime that, uh, or is that yeah, it? Or? Uh, yeah, my previous film, Roulette, is Roulette. Also okay. Awesome. Okay, we're gonna have to check that. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm I felt bad. I didn't watch that one yet. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. It's very, very different. Um, it's it's not a horror film per se. Um, however, it starts to have some incidents that occur that definitely you're going to sit there and go, okay, this, this person loves horror movies. And then the very end got the film banned from a couple of film festivals for being Whoa. so out there, crazy explicit, or at least that was, that was the way that it was being described. Um, and it was actually a fight for me to find a distributor who would release it uncut, despite the fact that there's no graphic gore. I'd be really interested in seeing what you what you think of it if you check it out. I might, yeah, I might have to watch that sure. tonight. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> yeah, so but uh, yeah, thanks for joining us again. I you know really enjoyed the film, and we'll would love to have you back on whenever we have some other stuff coming out. Please do, and gentlemen, thank you so much for checking out the movie. Thank you for having me on, and everybody listening to this. Five star reviews, please. Five star reviews for filmmakers for podcasters. For all independent artists out there who are trying to get their work seen or heard or read, five-star reviews. So please leave one for this show that you're hearing right now. All right. Well, thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>